For those of you who are new, we've been moving through the book of Matthew, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've now come to the final section, chapter 7. Matthew, the Gospel, presents Jesus as the King. And so the King, He ascends a mountain, and He preaches a sermon. Now, His primary audience for this sermon are His followers, His disciples. Uh, or, or you can call them the Kingdom citizens. He provides a way, He shows them the way of the Kingdom. How do you live In light of the coming future kingdom, how do you live this way now? And so he talks about how their righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's it's really an alien righteous, not one that we produce, but it's a righteousness that comes from someone else. The perfect one, Jesus himself. And it's a righteousness that proceeds from our hearts. It's not just external good works, but it's righteousness that comes from the heart. He says that the way of the kingdom, the religion of the kingdom, is sincere. It's genuine. It's not like that of the hypocrites who are looking for approval from men. But it's sincere and it's distinguished from the rest of the world. And then this past section we learned that the hope of the kingdom is eternal. And the riches of the kingdom are not stored here. We're not going to store our riches in this earth and in this world. We want to look forward to the kingdom And essentially, lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now, so Jesus' primary audience, His followers, disciples, kingdom citizens. But there is a secondary audience that is lurking in the shadows of this sermon. And we've talked about them already. It is the, uh, the religious hypocrite. Jesus has been referring to them throughout His sermon. He essentially tells His followers to not be like them. He's been indirectly addressing them. And in chapter 7 though, Jesus now draws the line. He draws the line. He he directly addresses this second audience. And He has a strong word for the profile that lurks in the shadows. The religious hypocrite. So this is a warning for us, the churchgoers. Those who are tempted to think much of themselves and our religiosity, tempted to become self-righteous and judge others. Jesus has a strong word for us in this section. Matthew 7, verses 1-6. to And it starts with a simple command. Look down at your Bibles. Matthew 7, 1. He says, judge not. Judge not. First point in your outline is do not judge. Do not judge. Now what does a judge do? A judge discerns between right and wrong. And he executes fair judgment according to the law. Now the sense in which this verb is used here is that of you taking the seat of a judge. You're putting yourself in the seat. And you're distinguishing right and wrong according to your own opinion. And you pronounce judgment on another. So you both charge them and you sentence them. That is what it means to judge. Taking the seat, 
and distinguishing right and wrong, and then executing judgment. If someone's wronged you, or if you see wrong out in the world, you're the person who says, that's wrong, and this is what you deserve, essentially. Now, Jesus' command is clear. He forbids judging. Judge not, he says. Now, that should cause us to pause and ask, are all forms of judgment wrong? Does this command leave our hands tied? Does it leave our hands over our mouths to not say anything when we see evil in the world? Or when we see even another person sinning? Can we not confront them? Can we not say something's right or wrong? Are we forbidden from expressing any opinion? Any form of judgment? Is it wrong to have a judicial system if this is Jesus' command? Is it wrong to ever declare someone else is, is guilty based on explicit evidence? Is it wrong to ever admonish, correct, or rebuke sin in another person's lives? This is a common retort in the church and in the community. They will say, stop judging me. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. When they're confronted, they say, don't judge me. Who are you to cast stones? Look at Jesus says, do not judge. In our postmodern, hypersensitive culture, it's anathema to tell someone they're wrong. You just don't do that. And so it needs to be said that the truth must be said. But there's a way that you speak the truth that's very important to Jesus. We must do it gently, lovingly, and correctly. Just a few points. Is it, are all forms of judging wrong? The answer is no. Okay, God established a justice system in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. He establishes a governing order even for the church in the New Testament. Paul tells us to judge. Judge and purge explicit sin in the church. Okay, and that's in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, it's those inside the church whom you are to judge, purge the evil person from among you. Later in this chapter, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. And then he says, they will, you will recognize them by their fruits. So implicit in that is for us to be able to distinguish between the right and wrong fruit that we see in a false prophet. Jesus says in John 7.24, He says, Don't judge by appearances, but positive command, judge with right judgment. Okay, So there's a way for us to discern right and wrong, for us to call out sin, confront it. There's a due process for church discipline, and there's a due process for criminals in society. There is rebuking false false teachers. All these things are endorsed by Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. So it can't be that Jesus is saying, don't ever judge anyone. There are certain judgments that we do need to make. There must be a way to discern right from wrong and even confront sin in a God-honoring manner. So what is Jesus getting at here? When He says, judge not, what is He getting at? Well, the question is not what, but who. 
Jesus is painting a profile here. This is very important. He's talking about a certain attitude that is carried by a certain person. It's the kind of person who, according to this passage, they're passing out judgment like it's candy at Halloween. They're concerned with the problems of others, but ignoring the problems in their own life. They are explicitly and emphatically called hypocrites in verse 5. It says, you hypocrite. And they're possibly even referred to as dogs and hogs in verse 6. Dogs and pigs. Do you get a sense of who Jesus is talking about here? Let him make it even more explicit. Matthew 23. Jesus calls them out explicitly with a very similar principle that he describes in Matthew 6. He says this, Matthew 23, 2-4, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. What was Moses' seat? Moses was the Old Testament lawgiver and law enforcer. So they're sitting in the seat of judge. He says, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. They preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their own finger. Does it sound like what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6? Concerned about the speck in another person's eye while missing the log in their own? The profile that Jesus is painting in Matthew chapter 7, sorry, and Matthew 23, I believe, is the same. Jesus is addressing the self-righteous Pharisees and their inclination to judge and be hypercritical of others. The Pharisees and the scribes have this superiority complex about them. They think much of themselves and little of everyone else. They love to sit in the seat of judge and cast Uh, Sorry, charge and sentence others while ignoring their own pride. This is the kind of judgmentalism that I believe Jesus is addressing in Matthew 7. It's the I'm better than you mentality. It's the God, I thank you that I'm not like the tax collector mentality. Dr. Uh, James Boyce calls it the self-righteous fault finder, the self-righteous fault finder. I think primarily Jesus, again, has that kind of profile that's lurking in the shadows in view here, and that's who he's addressing, the religious hypocrite. But before you dismiss the instruction, oh, so this is for the Pharisees then, you need to check yourself. Is this kind of seed of hypocrisy in your life? It's easy for us, isn't it? Especially churchgoers to become self-righteous fault finders. To put ourselves or think of ourselves as better than others. More mature, spiritually mature than others. Like we have it all figured out and the world has, has it all wrong. It's easy for us to put ourselves on a pedestal, to put ourselves in the seat of Moses, and to wag our fingers at others. Be careful. That is the seed of the Pharisee. 
all the while we can easily miss the log of pride in our own superiority complex. Jesus told us in Matthew 16, watch out. Beware, he says, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Are you aware of the potential leaven in your own heart, in your own life? Christian, churchgoer. It's really a shame that many in the world would characterize the church by this attribute. Ask the world, what's the church like? Many of them will tell you they're judgmental. Now, many of them are just offended that you would, you know, call sin what it is. But there are a lot of people that have been burned by the church in this area. And that's the honest truth. Churches, churchgoers tend to be hypercritical, self-righteous fault finders. And that's just not how God's kingdom citizens are to function. Jesus confronts that attitude, rebukes it in this passage. He says very clearly, do not judge. Don't judge in this way, but just like the commands that came before, he gives us reasons why. He explains. He doesn't just leave it at a command and then walk away. He gives us reasons why we ought to not judge others. There's two reasons we see in this passage. Number one, judge not to not be judged. Judge not to not be judged. Verse 1 and 2 says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The cross-reference in the Gospel of Luke says this, Luke 6.37, Judge not and you'll not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, the measure you give is the measure you get. Similar to the principle, you reap what you or you reap what you sow, right? Or if you dish it out, you better be ready to take it. So something my dad always told me. If you dish it out, you better be ready to take it. Now you'll notice there are two courtrooms here. Did you see that there's two courtrooms? There's your courtroom, the one where you sit in the seat of judge, and then there is God's courtroom. Judge not in your courtroom, lest you be judged in God's courtroom. Do you see the two courtrooms? Now, how you treat people in this life is your courtroom. How you deal with people who wrong you, or maybe you see wrong in their life, that's your courtroom, right? You're making calls every day. Oh, this person's that kind of way because they did X, right? God's courtroom is where you stand in the next life. Your courtroom is how you treat people in this life. And here's the overarching principle. Get this. How you deal with people in your courtroom reveals where you stand in God's courtroom. Let me say it again. 
how you deal with people in your courtroom reveals where you really stand in God's courtroom. If it's judgment, 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 no mercy, no love, no grace, what can you expect in God's courtroom? Judgment, 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 no mercy, no love, no grace. That principle is throughout Scripture. Matthew 5, 7. If you show mercy in your courtroom, then you'll receive mercy in God's. Blessed are the merciful, for what? They shall receive mercy. If you show forgiveness in your courtroom, then you'll receive forgiveness in God's. We covered that principle as well, Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. But if you like to play judge, you like to be in charge, you like to both charge and sentence people according to your opinion, if you're hypercritical, if you're only focused on the faults of others, ignoring the sin in your life, then you can expect God to pull out the book and to hold you to that book. Romans 2, we read that passage as a scripture reading, says he will not be partial. There will be wrath and fury stored up for you. Romans 14.10 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. James 4.12, There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And we need to feel the weight of these warnings. Remember to be humble, to not put ourselves above others. Be careful how you treat people in your courtroom. Because when you see others doing wrong, when they wrong you, when you notice the faults, inadequacies, problems in their life, how you treat them is a foretaste of how God will treat you. Judge not that you may not be judged. So how are the affairs in your courtroom? What are the measures that you're giving out? How are you treating people that wrong you? Parents, do you hold your children to a standard that you yourself do not keep? Do you hold them to unrealistic expectations? Always playing judge, always dishing out punishment, but never showing mercy, grace, or forgiveness. Is there a double standard in your parenting? Church folks, how are your affairs with one another? Does love cover a multitude of sins, or is it condemnation? Do you pridefully posture yourself as superior than others? More spiritually mature? Are you quick to point out the faults in others, but you're slow to confess sin in your own life? Christian, how are your affairs with the world? Do you eye roll at the LGBTQ plus community? 
Do you eye roll at the angry protests? Do you eye roll at the Marxist idealism? 1 Corinthians 6 says you were in the same boat as they were. In that list, including the homosexuals, is the idolaters, those disobedient to parents, and many more sins that all of us in this room struggle with or have failed in. And Paul reminds us that such were some of you. You were in that boat. Here's the only difference between you and them. You were washed. Not by your own self-righteousness, not by your religious performance, not by how good you were, but by the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, show mercy and grace. Don't compromise the truth, but when you deliver it, it ought to be with much love, much mercy, and much grace. That is the proper posture of the Christ follower. When they confront sin, when they preach the truth, whether it's to each other or out to the world, they don't posture themselves as judge above, superior then, their posture is that of appeal. They have sincere humility. They say, I'm a sinner just like you. Let me show you where I found mercy, where I found grace, where I found the truth. You're appealing to them, not wagging your finger at them. Let me show you the mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take you to the same place I went. That's the posture of the Christian toward each other and to the world. How you deal with people in your courtroom reveals where you stand in God's courtroom. We said this back in Matthew chapter 6, but if you do not have mercy, if you do not have grace, if you show no love, then the question is, did you receive any? Do you know the God who is full of mercy, grace, and love? If you do, then you'll show it to others. And you'll treat people the same way that God has treated you. Judge not, the first reason, to not be judged. The second reason, judge not to deal with your own sin first. Instead of being busying yourself with the sin in other people's lives, make sure you're actually dealing with your own sin in your own life. Look at verse 3. It says, why do you see the speck? that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log or the plank in your own eye. This reminds me of that video on YouTube, right? The wife and the husband are in a dispute and she's got a nail in her head. Have you seen this? The people who have will know. She has a nail in her head and they're having an argument. He's trying to, he's trying to show her, hey, honey, there's a nail in your head. He says it explicitly. She said, it's not about the nail. She said, but I have this pressure I feel this pain in my head. I don't know how to get rid of it. He said, but there's a a nail. It's not about the nail, right? It's ridiculous. We act the same way. We have nails in our foreheads. We've got logs in our eyes, but we're thinking the problem is it couldn't be us. It's someone else. It's you. It's that speck. That's the issue. I mean, the illustration is ridiculous. Could you imagine a person with a log sticking out of their eye, sitting on the couch with a person with a little speck of sawdust in their eye. You just see the difference. 
Planck guy is hyper-focused on Speck guy. But he makes the illustration even more ridiculous. He makes it even comedic. Look at the audacity of Planck guy in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your own eye or your eye when there's a log in your own eye? This is like the kettle calling the pot or the pot calling the kettle black. It reminds me of King David. You remember King David? He had commit adultery with Bathsheba, and to cover it up, he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to confront him. And how does Nathan confront him? Does he just say, David, you murderer, you adulterer? No, no, no. He tells a story. Do you remember the story? I'll read it to you. He says, there were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up. He grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. This was more than right a flock. This was a precious part of the family, a domesticated lamb. It was like a daughter to him, he said. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one from his own flock, his herd, to prepare for the guest, but he went and took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. That means he killed it, that poor guy. David's mad. He's furious. His anger was greatly kindled against that man. That rich man who would kill that poor little lamb that was a precious daughter to that poor man. How could someone do that? He said, as the Lord lives, the man who does this or who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this horrible thing and he had no pity. Nathan says to him, you are that man. David was quick ready to throw stones at that lamb murderer. And yet, there's a log in his eye, isn't there? He is a manslayer. He killed a man. He is that rich man. But David was blinded by his own pride. The hypocrisy. He was eager to remove the speck, but blind to take the log out first. He says, how can you, Jesus says similar, how can you do this? How can you say to someone else, let me take the speck out of your eye, and there's a log of pride in your own eye. Obviously, with the log guy or the plank guy, he's not really concerned with helping the other brother who has the speck. He's probably looking, well, he's really, he's patronizing him. He's looking to subtly direct the attention off of his plank and onto other people's problems. We see this rampant throughout society, blame shifting. It's their fault. It can never be my fault, right? Jesus has a strong word for this kind of fake charity. He says it in verse 5. He says, you hypocrite. This is where he finally directly addresses the hypocrite. He says, you hypocrite. This is emphatic in the original language. It is a strong word. Just like Nathan pointed at David and said, you are the man. Jesus 
points his finger at the self-righteous fault finder. He says, you hypocrite. We can feel the Lord Jesus and His anger kindled towards this kind of sin. The hypocrisy of the self-righteous fault finder, it's gagging Him. He can't stand it. He can't bear this kind of attitude. Jesus, just so you know, saves His strongest rebukes, not for the pagans, not for the world out there. His strongest rebukes go to the hypocrite, the self-righteous Pharisees, those quote-unquote synagogue-goers, church-goers that think they're better than everyone else. Jesus says, beware. Watch out for this seed of the Pharisees. Run from this kind of attitude. Kill it. Cut it off immediately when it springs up even in your own heart to be hypercritical. Rather than throwing stones at others, Christ's followers are busy throwing their own sin out of their heart. That's what Jesus says after He says, you hypocrite, He says, first, take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your own problem, your own sin first. And, and actually, the, the translation of take is not as strong as the word used. This is, this is the, word, the same word, balo, for throw it out. Drive it out. Expel it. Deal with this. Cast it away. This is a strong response to your own sin. To deal with it. To take care of it. Not to just to acknowledge it. Yeah, I'm a sinner too. But you, oh man, you're a real sinner. No, no, no. Jesus says, deal seriously with your own sin. Drive out that pride. Deal with it often, always, regularly. Stop focusing on the problems of others. Stop blaming everyone else. Throw away your log. ABC. Always be confessing your sin. ABR. Always be repenting. ABH. Always be humble. These are the attitudes of a true Christ follower. 1 John 2, or I'm sorry, verse uh, chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5 even says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Be dealing with your own sin problems first. And foremost. Always confessing. Always repenting. Always being humble before your God. And that humility actually has great practical benefit as you interact with others. Look at what Jesus says. He says, if you take that log out of your eye, look at verse 5, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, that makes sense. If the log's out of your eye, if your eyes are clear, then you can actually help that brother. You can actually be a practical benefit to them. There's progress here. It's helpful when you deal with your own sin first. How many of you have found great success with the hypercritical method in your parenting? How many of you find that, you know, when you lay down the law, when you tighten up the rules, when you're more rigid with your kids, when you leave no room for mistakes, oh, they just open up like flowers. 
and confess all their problems to me. We know practically it doesn't work that way. Do you know what gets a good response from your kids, your teenager even, who's struggling and dealing with sin? When your approach is gentle, when you open up yourself, when you confess, you know, mom and dad really struggle with that too. Or you know what, dad really struggles with that. And you're honest with your son or with your daughter. You say, you know, I, I, this is how I dealt with it when I was young. And then what kind of response do you get? Most often, there's relief. You find vulnerability, honesty, openness from them in return, right? You're taking the log out of your own eye. You're admitting your own mistakes. You're not approaching them from a place of superiority, even though you are their authority, but you approach them with humility and love and tenderness. You get a better response. We know this to be true. We know this to be true with one another. We know this to be true in our parenting. We know this to be true with the world. You want to drive a wedge between the world and the gospel? Approach them pridefully and show them how great you are and how superior you are for finding Jesus and how wicked and wretched they are. That'll do well. Not. We need to drop that kind of attitude. We need to take the log out of our own eye, and that will give us the right perspective, the humility, the mercy, the love we need to help others with the specks in their eyes. Okay? It's a universal truth. If you want to correct others in a way that's helpful, if you really do see problems in other people's lives, or if someone has offended you, the most helpful way to correct them is to start by dealing with your own problem first. When you're quick to confess, when you're quick to admit your own faults, when you're clothed in humility, you become attractive and winsome. And obviously it's the truth of God's Word. You put no barrier, no stumbling block in front of the truth that will actually work on the other person's heart and life. You'll find success in your parenting, success in your shepherding, Success in bearing the burdens of others if you're dealing with your own sin first. Confessing, repenting, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's the only way that you're actually able to help someone with their problems. So do not be a self-righteous fault finder. Two reasons. To not be judged with the same measure you judge others. And to deal with your own sin first, which is actually way more helpful. Now, the last verse is an, is an interesting comment and requires some explanation. Look at verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and they turn to attack you. What a strange word. Who are the dogs and the hogs? The dogs and the pigs. And what are we not supposed to give them or cast in front of them? This is point two in your outline. Avoid scoffers. And I'll explain that. Avoid scoffers. Both dogs and hogs, these are derogatory names, obviously. They don't sound good to be called a dog or to be called a pig. Dogs were unclean. They were untamed scavengers. Pigs are unclean. Forbidden food of, of the pagans. The Israelites could not eat them. So, maybe the dogs and the pigs are pagan idolaters, 
Maybe these are the nations, those who are not of Israel. That could be what some people think. Jesus even addresses the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. He said, it's not right to take the children's bread, referring to Israel, and throw it to the dogs, referring to the Gentiles. But that interpretation doesn't make sense based on the context. Jesus just dealt with the self-righteous fault finders, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, really the religious Jews who look down on other people. And so why would he turn and address a different audience? That doesn't make sense. He says, don't give them what's holy. Don't throw them pearls, lest they trample them underfoot and they turn to attack you. That's helpful. So the response of these people helps us to identify them. They trample your words and they attack you. Can you think of people that were aggressive and bitey in their response to Jesus' teaching? Was it the sinners, the tax collectors, or was it the Pharisees, the scribes, who eventually killed him? What about that which is holy in the pearls? Well, we know Jesus later describes the kingdom of heaven as a merchant who finds a fine pearl of great value. That which is holy is known to be that which is sacrificed on the altar and set apart as sacred. So the precious and sacred treasure Jesus is talking about here is probably the gospel, the truth of the kingdom of heaven, that which gives us access to this kingdom and provides a way for atonement for our sin. And this is a severe remark then. Think about what Jesus is saying. He's talking about withholding the truth from certain individuals. Now, who did Jesus withhold truth from in his ministry? You remember when he starts teaching in parables in Matthew 13, the disciples ask, why do you do that? Why are you using these stories? And he tells them exactly why. He says, I'm doing so to hide the truth from certain people, to prevent them from understanding. He's talking, referring to self-righteous Israel. Those who have grown dull, whose ears can barely hear, whose eyes have been closed. Who is it that rejected Jesus' words and eventually attacked Him and crucified Him? Was it not the Pharisees, the hypocrites? He talks about in 2 Peter, or Peter talks about in 2 Peter 2, how the Judaizers bring in destructive heresies, deny our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of truth is blasphemed, and they exploit you with false words. Does that sound like what Jesus is talking about here? It appears as though both Jesus and Peter had the same dogs and hogs in mind. I believe the dogs and hogs to be the religious scoffers. In Jesus' context, the Pharisees and the scribes, who he actually withheld truth from, and who actually turned to exploit his words and to attack him. A lot of people take this verse and say, hey, don't share the gospel with the world because they're real bad out there, those pagans. And some of them are scoffers, and we need to use discernment. But I think actually Jesus' primary audience is here are the religious scoffers. Those who twist the gospel 
who make up their own man-made religion and maybe under the guise of Christianity and therefore really attack the Word and attack His people. False teachers, false prophets that most often, by the way, rise up from within, not from on the outside. So I would be careful to not apply this passage to any politician you don't like. Or maybe a bad boss. He's a scoffer. I'm not going to preach the gospel to him. No. Or any sinful person. Be careful when we apply this command. And be careful especially to not forsake the former. To not become someone who judges others. But continues to appeal to them. Don't place yourself in the seat of judge. Over a sinner that you yourself were like before you came to know Christ. Jesus really summarizes this whole section. We'll get to this verse in chapter 7, verse 12. We'll get here in a couple weeks, but I need to point to it because it's really important as it relates to this principle. Look at Matthew seven twelve. It says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule. The golden rule. How you treat people in your courtroom is how God will treat you. It reflects how God will treat you in His. Treat others in your courthouse the same way you want others to treat you. Yahweh ultimately is judge and He is Savior. Isaiah 33.22 You know that justice and mercy meet at the cross. Jesus Christ. He accomplished the justice of God by paying the penalty for our sins, dying on the cross. And the mercy of God was granted to us because He took our place and we are declared righteous, clean, forgiven, even though we deserve the punishment that Jesus paid. This is the Gospel. This is the story of the good news. Jesus Christ took our place. And so if you have not received that and you're here today, I encourage you to embrace Christ. Because then and only then will you understand justice and mercy correctly. And be able to show others mercy that God has granted you. Christian, when you see injustice in the world, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest injustice that happened in mankind. This man died and he was innocent. He was killed. But in his death, he made a great sacrifice to atone for your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. Look to him as the answer for the sin and the evil that we see in this world. And then take others by the hand, not in a way that's superior over them, but comes alongside them and makes the appeal. Look to Jesus Christ, the answer, the solution. Judge not. Judge not. Judge not. Let me pray. Father, again, we thank You that You are the righteous judge. If judgment was left to us, God, we would mess it up. Because we are not righteous. We're sinners. And we're easily deceived, easily manipulated, easily fall short of Your perfect standard of justice. So we leave justice in Your hands, God. Help us to then look out to others and lead them gently, with love, with compassion, as an appeal to guide them to You, O God, and not to ever put our place in superiority over them.
Help us to not be tempted to become a self-righteous fault finder. Help us to guard against that kind of religiosity that is distasteful to you, O God. That is prideful. And the Scriptures say that, God, you oppose the proud. Help us to be humble in response to the Gospel and treat others in the way that we would want them to treat us. In the way that we know you will treat us in your courtroom. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. The manifestation of your justice and your mercy. In his name we pray. Amen.